But we are living in very unique times. The age of coronavirus, if you will. We have seen how it has spread in other places throughout China and even to a greater degree throughout Italy, I understand, and Spain, France, spreading greatly. And uh, it is a very real thing about which we should be concerned. That said, some have taken concern to an all-new level. There are reports of stores fighting to keep their shelves stocked while there's been runs on, on water and, and on uh, toilet paper, <laughs> on all sorts of groceries. That's probably overreacting. There is a fine line between being prudent and being panicky. Right? And we want to make sure that we don't cross over that line. Panic is never a good idea. Certainly proper precautions, though, should be taken. And, and we've taken many of them here. We'll be discussing in the near future what, what other precautions we ought to take as a church. And we'll, we'll make sure that we get to that word to you. But uh, some of you aren't here with us. You're here online. We, we're glad that you're here with us. Those of you who are here, we're glad that you're here today. Regardless of whether you're online or here in present, I'm sure you came here expecting to hear something about the coronavirus and what God would have for us in the midst of that. Um, as for medical advice, I, I would say this. Listen to the medical experts, of which I am not one. So I'm not going to try to tell you all the different things that you should do and shouldn't do medically other than say, listen to the people who know. Listen to the experts. Don't, don't just listen to whatever uh, echo chamber that you want to be in of all the voices that say what you already think. Uh, listen to the experts, whoever those experts might be. I don't have medical expertise and so I won't try to speak to you uh, from, from a medical standpoint, but what I will try to do to you is give you what I do have. And I do have the Word of God. And so the Word of God is where we will turn today as we spend some time in Isaiah 41 and see how it speaks to us. But before we do that, would you take a moment and, and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we... We seek answers today. We seek direction. We seek wisdom. But most of all, we seek you. And so we turn now to your word. We turn to your word and we ask you to speak. And we ask you to give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that might receive your truth. And Lord, give us minds that might comprehend and know the beauty of your love and of your glory and of your grace. Speak to us now, Lord, for even though your word was written in a different context, it is even yet the unchanging word of an unchanging God. Written for your people for all time. 
And so in our time today, we turn to it now. Expectantly. Not because we are great or we are worthy, but because you are great and you are worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of God, inspired by his Holy Spirit, given to his people. Isaiah 41, 1 through 10. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach and let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gave up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, in difficult times like these, we, we certainly need to ask ourselves a question. The question is, is who or what should we be focusing our attention on? What should we pay the most attention to? Well, should we pay attention and focus on ourselves? Certainly, it's impossible to avoid it to at least some degree. Of course, we see the world with our own eyes and we live out our own life, and so it's impossible to totally ignore ourselves. So to some degree, we will pay attention to ourselves. But we shouldn't just focus on ourselves. Should we focus on others? Absolutely, we should focus on others. After all, that is the law of Christ, right? We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and 
love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, to whatever degree we are focusing on ourselves, we should focus on, on our neighbors, on those around us, others just as much, at the very least. But even beyond that, most importantly, in a time like this, and frankly in all times, where our focus should primarily be, is on God. It's true in times of trial and tribulation. It's true in times of peace and prosperity. And in light of that, I have three questions that I want to ask you this morning. Three questions that I believe are spoken to by this text that we just read a moment ago. And those three questions are first, who is God? Secondly, who are we? And three, ultimately, where is our confidence? First of all, who is God? At this point, it's, it's important for us to remember, as we've looked at Isaiah 41, we need to, to remember how we got to Isaiah 41. Now you might say, well, we got there, Pete, because you picked it as the sermon text. And that's how it is, and we're just kind of dropping in like paratroopers into Isaiah 41. Uh, and, and in a sense, that is true. But that, of course, is not the ordinary way that one would get to Isaiah 41. Usually, we don't pick a text like that, do we? We work our way, as we've been working through here, through the book of Galatians. From Galatians chapter 1, then Galatians chapter 2, then Galatians chapter 3. So, of course, normally the way that we would get to Isaiah 41 is by going through Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 talks a lot about God. It tells us a lot about God. It teaches us a lot about God. And we should read Isaiah 41 as if it is expanding and expounding upon what has been taught about God in Isaiah 40. They really go together. And, and Isaiah 40 is to many of us a chapter that, that includes many passages of Scripture that we're familiar with. Just a moment ago, I, I said at the end of my sermon, as I or at the end of my Scripture reading, uh, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That comes from Isaiah 40, chapter uh, chapter 40, verse 8. And, and perhaps you're familiar with Matthew 3, which speaks of John the Baptist coming and preaching in the wilderness and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Matthew tells us that this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. And the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, ends with these words. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us that this is the creator God. It speaks of the power that he has and the power that he gives. 
That is how we are made strong. And so with these words, Isaiah turns his attention now to our text today, chapter 41. Have you ever spoken to somebody, but in speaking to them, you weren't really talking to them? You know, perhaps like if I were to tell somebody, you know, I'm really hoping that my wife for my birthday gets me such and such a gift. But when I tell them that, I make sure to tell them that within the earshot of my wife. Right? right? Because, because I didn't want to say it to her because that sounds, oh, you know, I want this. But I really wanted her to know, right? So I, I say something to you, but I'm really not talking to you. Well, God kind of does that here in chapter 41 of Isaiah. God, God is speaking to the nations. But, but in speaking to the nations, that's not really who he's talking to, of course. He's talking to his people. He's talking to, to his people as he speaks to the nations. He says in verse 1, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. The King James Version says, O Islands, the idea is those who are not in Israel, those who are not the people of God, you, you nations, you outsiders to the covenants of promise, listen to me. He says to them, but actually to his people as he's speaking, these things reminding that it is God in whom we are to find our strength. He says, he says to the coastlands, to the, to the nations, let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach and, and let them speak. He's, he's kind of ironically taunting the nations. He, he's, he's saying to them in words that, that pick up from what he just ended with in chapter 40. Remember, he, he said that, that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. That is how we renew our strength. But, but now he says to those who are without the Lord, who, who have not that option, he says, let the peoples renew their strength. Come on, let me see you do it. Renew your strength apart, apart from the Lord. And then he says, let us draw together for judgment. Drawing near for judgment isn't always, and usually isn't, as a matter of fact, a very pleasant thing. You know, if you've ever seen somebody uh, who, who was in a court case, they're being charged with a crime, and uh, the jury has deliberated, and they come back, and the jury and the judge are about to announce the verdict, uh, the defendant doesn't usually look very happy at that moment. He's not usually all smiling and giggly, right? Because, because this is a serious thing, and, and if he is guilty, he knows that there will be great repercussions, and so when we consider drawing near to God, we need to realize that if we are doing so in and of our own strength, on our own merits, we are guilty. And the judgment of God is a severe thing. And so it's not a pleasant thing to draw near to God. We talk about, oh, I just want to be close to God. Well, that's a wonderful thing if God is your loving Father. It's quite another thing if he is your condemning judge. And so, he says, let us draw near for judgment. And we're reminded that apart 
from God's grace, apart from what he has done for us. We are no different than those who are totally separated from God, those who have no right to come before him. We come to him clothed in the righteous robes of Christ Jesus. And that's the only way that we can come to him and not receive a righteous judgment against us. That's the key for us. The key for us is that that when we come to God, we do as his children, beloved by him. What a wonderful truth that is. And so we come to him and we stand before him and we trust in him. And we find comfort in him. Back in chapter 40 again, if we hop back a chapter, we, we look at how it begins. Chapter 40 famously begins with a verse that we often look at in Advent. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. He's, he's speaking of how the Lord is the one who ends our warfare. The Lord is the one who has done this. We, we don't come and conquer him. He has conquered us. He has made us his own. But, but while we were his enemies and deserved to be nothing but his slaves, he has instead in Christ Jesus made his, us his beloved children. What a blessing it is. Christ Jesus bore the penalty that we deserved on the cross. There, the righteous judgment of God cascaded upon him for my sins and for yours. And he absorbed that penalty, that chastisement, so that we could be made right with God. And made right with him, now we are. We can find great comfort in that. But, but we need to realize that eternal comfort and salvation is not all that we find in him. Too often people think in this way, they consider Jesus just to be their, their fire insurance policy that they, they sign just to get them out of trouble if, if, if they get into trouble. And, and we need to realize that, that when we come to know Christ as our Savior, it's not a matter of just making a decision on one day and writing that date and the the flyleaf of your Bible, right, so that you can look back and say with assurance, oh, yep, I'm a Christian because it says so right here. I wrote down the date that I prayed the prayer. No, a far better evidence of our faith, the Bible tells us, as we've looked in just the past few weeks, is the fruit of the Spirit being evident in our lives as as we live out our lives. Has, Has Jesus changed who we are? We said before, if anyone is in Christ, he is a a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. As you look at your life before Christ and after Christ, is there a difference? Can you discern a difference? Is there a difference? There ought to be if you have really met with him. Because God impacts our lives, not just in the hereafter. He impacts our lives here and now. God changes us. And he cares for us. And so we can trust him even now because God is the God who's not an idol. He actually does things, right? Back in chapter 40 again, in verse 18 and following, it speaks of, of, uh, it says, "To, to whom then will you liken God or 
What likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it uh, silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. But we do not worship a God who does not move. We do not worship a dead idol. We worship the true and living God who's, who's not a God made by the hands of humans, but a God whose hands made all things and who is alive even now and active even now and who is working even now. He is the God who acts. We see it in verse 2 and following of our text today. He is the God who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues and passes on safely by his paths that his feet have not trod. How is it that this happens? How is it that enemies are defeated and ultimate victory is secured for God's people? Well, verse 4 tells us who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am he. Yahweh, the God who has created all things. The, the God who still sovereignly holds the world in the palm of his hands. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The God who is a God of promise. And perhaps we even see reference of that in verse 2. When it says, who stirred up one from the east. Who is this one from the east? Many of the commentators suggest it's King Cyrus. John Calvin actually suggests, and I think he's actually right if you had to pin me down. He says he thinks that it's Abraham that's being referred to here by God. And if it is Abraham, it makes sense, for he is the one whom the Lord called, the one to whom the Lord made promises, the one who trusted in the Lord and proved the Lord to be faithful, the one who conquered in the Lord's name and was victorious. But regardless of whether it was Cyrus or Abraham or whoever it happened to be that this is referring to in verse 2, this much is true, as one commentator put it, every historical conqueror raised up by God is a faint shadow of the great ultimate victor, God's Messiah. And in him, the people of God are triumphant. For he, it is King Jesus who has conquered our greatest enemies, sin, death, and Satan. He has won the victory for us that we might truly be free. This is who God is. So if this is who God is, then the second question was, who are we? Who are we? As I mentioned before, on our own, we're nothing special, really. We're nothing special on our own. We don't have any merit in and of ourselves that makes us right before God. So we see in this passage, when it talks about the coastlands, the nations, a picture of what we would be apart from God. Verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. They have reason to be faithful or to be fearful, right? Because they are separated from God. God is not their father. They, they apart from him, have very good reason to fear and to fear greatly. 
They have reason to tremble. Because without God, a bad way to be. Then like I said before, even worse is coming before God when he's not your father. He's, he, he's a consuming fire, Isaiah 33 tells us. And so we see that we need to be right with him. That is of ultimate importance. And the gods that, that the coastlands, that the nations, that the people had, were, were not this way. They were not familiar with this idea. And, and so they thought that, that what they had to do was to kind of gird themselves up by their own ability, by their own strength, that they would accomplish things. And so it says in verse 6 and following, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong, there's nothing wrong with helping your neighbor, of course. We're certainly called to do that. We should do that. But we should know that ultimately, true strength comes not just from one another helping each other, but it comes from God Almighty. And it says here that, that what they were doing in helping one another was help, actually helping one another to build idols that they might worship. That's why it talks of the craftsman strengthening the goldsmith and the, the hammer upon the anvil and... and uh, all, all this talk of the different idols that they are building here. And so, so they build these objects of faith that are completely worthless, these, these little g gods that, that they come before. But our God, the God that, that we have, the God to whom we belong, is not like this. We've said that before. He is a mighty God who, who acts. And so the, the question of who are we is really answered by a different question. Whose are we? Right? We are the children of God. The beloved children of God. That's who we are. We belong to the God who is. He has made us his people in Christ Jesus. Peter says it this way. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we are in Christ Jesus, Abraham's offspring. We've looked at that in past weeks in Galatians 3, right? It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham is the father of all who believe. So, so we, as those who believe, who trust in Christ Jesus, are the children of God. We are the people of God. And when God makes promises to Israel and to Jacob and to Abraham, he is making those promises to the people of God. He is making those promises to us. And so when he says in verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. He is saying that to you this morning. God has chosen you. He has not cast you off. You deserve to be cast off. I deserve to be cast off. But God has chosen for his purposes and for his glory to instead of casting us off, to draw us near. He has chosen us and loved us. What a promise, what a, what a comfort there is. And so, so knowing who God is and 
who we are, the answer becomes evident to our third question. Where ultimately is our confidence? Well, it is in the love of God for his people, the the strength of his hand, and the faithfulness of his word. Verse 10, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If there was ever a promise the people of God needed to hear today, that is it. Fear not, for God is with us. He will strengthen us. He will uphold us. He will be there no matter what comes our way. Right? I've, I've said it before, I, you know, when I was a little kid in the playground, you know, and you'd get in an argument and you got scared, you know, it's like, well, yeah, well, my dad can beat up your dad. Our dad can beat up their dad. <laughs> for he is the most powerful. And he cares for us and loves us and will be there for us, strengthening us and caring for us. Now, I'm not saying that that the coronavirus or COVID-19 will ultimately be as deadly as this. I'm not saying that at all. But, But with the reality of a global pandemic, it caused me to think about how the church has historically dealt with such things. And in the 1500s, the plague hit Geneva. And John Calvin taught the company of pastors in that day to, to go out and meet with the members of the church, the people who were, who were struck with the plague, who were there dying. And as they met with them, they were supposed to offer them three words of encouragement. The first of these three things were this. He said, tell them to remember that death does not have power over the Christian. Death does not have power over the Christian, for we belong to Christ Jesus, and he triumphed over the grave. Do not fear death. The second thing he told them to say was to to remember the message of the gospel. Confess your sins. Flee to the cross of Christ and rest in his grace and mercy. Then finally, number three, remember that God protects and loves and cares for and watches over his people. You can trust in the fatherly love of God that all things that come into your life ultimately come into your life for your good and for his glory. Now that can be hard to believe at times but we know it to be true. Now, that doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you. Remember that Calvin's telling these pastors to say this to people who are literally dying of the plague. And many of these pastors themselves, as a result of going to meet with them, would also literally die of the plague. And yet he had the audacity to say to them that all things that come into your life ultimately do so for your good and for his glory. 
You see, bad things happen in a fallen world. They do. But as Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intends for good. I look to the cross and I see how how God was at work for our good and his glory, even there, especially there. Right? Mary, a mother watching her beloved child being tortured and murdered as his blood was spilt, surely had no capacity to understand how this could be for her good. And yet it was. For as his blood was spilt, she was washed clean of her sins. And so was I. And if you trust in Christ Jesus today, then so are you. And so if God can accomplish good in the the worst of things that has ever occurred, surely we know that whatever befalls us, he can work for good in that. So so, so if we have to self-quarantine, then we know that God will use that for our good and for his glory. And if we have to experience economic and political upheaval, then we know that God will use that for our good and for his glory. And if we have to endure sickness and, yes, even death, then we know that God will use that for our good and for his glory. So I want to say one thing in closing. We recently got a, a new hymnal, and I love it because it's got some wonderful hymns in it, but what I, one of the other things I love about it is some of the resources it has in the back. And among the resources in the back are a number of creeds and confessions. One of them is the Heidelberg Confession. And on page 872, we find question one of the Heidelberg Heidelberg Catechism, I'm sorry. The question is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer it gives is not money, nor intelligence, nor political persuasions, nor fame, nor popularity, nor even good health. These are all insufficient in life and utterly useless in death. No, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So how do we respond to the coronavirus and COVID-19? How do we respond? We respond to it by living for Christ Jesus and entrusting ourselves to him. Believing him when he says, peace I leave 
you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. We respond to coronavirus by heeding that most common command of the Bible. Do not be afraid. And because God has first loved us, we love him and love others in his name. We don't just concern ourselves with me and mine, but rather whether it is an age of prosperity or in an age of pandemic. We are called to live to the glory of God and for the good of others, just as Christ Jesus lived and died for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that we are so blessed by you to be made your own. We thank you that though we deserve it not, by your grace and mercy, you have chosen us to be yours. We thank you that we can find comfort and peace and confidence and power in you. And we entrust ourselves to you now Help us to serve you and to serve others for the glory of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.